This is Bucky Stanton, and welcome to Technology Storytellers, brought to you by the Society for the History of Technology. Today I speak with Dr. Ray Von Fouché, Director of American Studies in the School of Interdisciplinary Studies at Purdue University. He's the author of Game Changer, The Techno-Scientific Revolution in Sports, and Black Inventors in the Age of Segregation. Fouché discusses invention and innovation by black technologists, exploring the intersections and relationships between racial representation and oppression, historical narratives of progress, and technical design. To open us up, when, when we think through the American technological canon, it's pretty clear to anyone with a cursory view that, that black technologists are few and far between in the standard narratives. And when they are mentioned, they're, they're held up in this kind of isolated fashion. They're, they're held up outside of the structures of the time. And they're kind of attached to these vague narratives, sometimes of rising above or certain circumstances. And I wanted to ask you, because your work kind of reveals a much more complicated relationship, what your outline of the, the major processes over time in American history with this antagonist relation, antagonistic tension are. How, how, how are the histories of blackness and technical invention entangled in American history? Well, I think the relationship between blackness and technology, uh, I always think about starting, at least in the United States context, starting in slavery. Uh, when we think about slave ships, oftentimes one of the main things we don't really have a larger way of discussing or thinking through is that slave ships were these massive techno-scientific artifacts designed specifically to transport bodies from the African continent to the Caribbean and eventually to the United States. And so at the most basic level, when we think about the capturing of slaves using guns, weapons, all of these technologies were in a sense designed and manufactured to manipulate and move bodies from one continent to the other. And so I think that's one of the first instances where we think about particularly blackness in the relationship between technologies, that the idea that there are a group of people that design technology specifically to transport bodies. And if you look at any of the schematics of any of the slave ships, I mean, the, the spaces are pretty tight. Um, it was very much a puzzle of how to carefully and thoughtfully, but with, much, with getting as many bodies as possible packaged in a slave ship. That's the first instantiation of what we think about race, blackness, and technology. But I think moving forward, uh, the next point is, in my mind in many ways, I would say, around emancipation. So we have moments before the Emancipation Proclamation where you have um, instances of the Dred Scott case in the, the 1840s where uh, you have people going to the patent office and there's one famous instance when uh, an individual tried to have a, a device patent by one of his slaves and he gets a reply back from the patent office saying, well, under the current state of the law, there's just no way we can um, grant your slave a patent. Uh, and if the slave receives a patent for that, um, we cannot defend anyone who might infringe upon it. Of course, it makes sense because at the time, black people were not citizens. So therefore, there's no way that African-American people could be protected by 
patent law because right, they're not citizens of any state or any country. So that's a very powerful statement about the perception of African-Americans in technology. And then I think the next moment I think about is moving forward roughly around the turn of the 20th century. At the turn of the 20th century, there are various expositions, world's fairs, and oftentimes these buildings or these events had uh, an African or a Negro building. And what was in those buildings was a hodgepodge of pies, cakes, sewing, and often the buildings also had a small little exhibition or exhibit on black inventors. So Henry Baker, one of the first black patent examiners, um, was the person responsible for putting this list together. Baker's a totally fascinating individual, uh, one of the first uh, people during reconstruction to enter the Naval Academy. Uh, he was expelled from the Naval Academy because he would not submit to the kind of racist traditions and activities in the Naval Academy. But he ends up going to uh, become a patent examiner, trained in law. And he's charged with creating this list of inventors for these exhibitions. So at the time, he sends letters to pretty much all of the patent examiners, patent solicitors, all the kind of middle people in the, the patent business and asking them to send documents about the black inventors. And of course, right, when we think about the patent world, uh, race is not part of the patent application. So you would know if someone is black or otherwise just from the documentation. So he gets a host of interesting letters back and a, a big chunk of them are saying, you know, I've never seen a, a black person to come to me or invent anything. Oftentimes, uh, um, some of the messy ways that people are raving, wrapping it together, bringing together perceptions of black inferiority, Asian inferiority, saying that we just don't know anyone who's not white who invented anything. So, but it, in the end, he does put, pull together a group of really interesting patents. And so this is the thing that oftentimes you see during Black History Month in the United States. You see the Black History Month list. And if you look at the list, it's very, very heavily driven by late 18th, early 19th, uh, late 19th, early 20th century inventions. Uh, and part of that is because Henry Baker created this list and it just get, keeps getting replayed over and over and over. And I think the evolution is changing right now is um, the, the kind of contemporary moment. Uh, when I, the work work I've done more recently is just the ways in which black people have used their own perceptions of the world, their own perceptions about their culture to create new technologies. Um, and one of the, my favorite stories to talk about is Grandmaster Flash. Uh, he was working on building a mixer and he was working with a company called Rain. Rain was at the time um, a fascinating company because on one end they would do large scale church installations for their mega church uh, production. And then the other end, they were working with DJs and turntables. So I love the idea of walking into this building and seeing who is what. And uh, initially, the first conversation where Grandmaster Flash evidently sent, um, called Rain, he got um, the person who was interested in the church installations. And they were like, uh, we don't know what to do with you. And then finally he got around to them. But what ended up happening is that he created this own mixer. And through his conversations and my interviewing of Rick Jeffs, who was a kind of design engineer at the time, he was talking about the back and forth. And 
basically Fash was saying this technology didn't represent or reflect his aesthetic cultural sonic beliefs. So he needed something to more representative and reflective of how he thought about his music and his work. So I think that's kind of a long rambling story about the kind of large scapes of uh, what's going on. But I think African-American people have had uh, a long and continuous experience with technology. And um, sometimes it has been deeply problematic. Uh, other times it has been enlightening. Well, yeah, perhaps uh, perhaps a Cranbernian perspective there on on technology and how we interact with it. It's never good. It's never bad. But I think that's such an interesting kind of shift shift from thinking about you know the standard narrative that African people didn't have the, the technology, which historians have debunked. But you know they were brought and interacted with these immensely scientific things in the Atlantic Triangle trade and then continued throughout American history asserting uh, particular elements of, of invention and innovation. I remember from my own work uh, in my undergrad thesis, Thomas Jefferson citing, and it's a similar idea that, uh, you know, he, he never saw any of his slaves doing Euclid's geometry. Uh, so they just, they weren't smart. And that was the reasoning. And, and it's such a particular and assumption laden idea that, that, you know, a culture needs to do that and part of what we do in the side of history of technology and the adjacent fields and societies is is really deconstruct that idea uh so in an effort to kind of deconstruct that idea and draw out that experience of the the black inventor and how these communities interacted with inventions could you kind of dig into the details and tell us you know a little bit more about the intersection between inventors inventions and the structures of, of racial oppression that were going on, not only in their their day to day lives, but their epistemic communities. Yeah, so uh, I guess going back to some of the, the bits and pieces that I think are really interesting. Um, so part of what's interesting about the ways in which African American inventors at least were deployed in the early 20th century by people like Booker T. Washington and W.D.B. Du Bois is that Black inventors were useful to them in their kind of political intellectual movements in the sense that right around that time, invention was seen as this God-given ability. And arguably, this is why even when African-American people were seen as being inventive, it was often cast in a, in a pejorative light. So one of the my favorite quotes that came from the Henry Baker um, correspondence is, is that there's one... Um, I guess patent attorney, I believe his name is E.J. O'Brien, he, he writes this, something to this nature, that um, it's a common known thought that the horse hayrake was invented by a lazy Negro who didn't want to rake the field by, by, on his own. And I love the idea that all of a sudden you can demean someone's innovation by saying they're lazy, right? It, it, I love that idea because shouldn't you say, wow, that's a really great idea. Why would one, anyone want to rake all this stuff with, by their hands? Why wouldn't they do something more innovative? But to get into kind of some of the experience of individuals, one of the people that I've written a bit about is Louis Latimer. And I'm intrigued with Louis Latimer, and he was one of the individuals that actually got me into thinking about African-American invention, is that the narrative associated with Louis Latimer is he is the African-American person invented a light bulb but that Thomas Edison stole it from. And 
if you go to the Smithsonian Museum or any kind of know any bit about the history and the evolution of um, incandescent bulb, you know there are lots of people working on that technology at different moments in time. And so what is interesting about Latimer is that he begins his life uh, being as a draftsman. So he's working with a host of inventors, um, Alexander Graham Bell and others, and writing and drawing their, making their patent drawings. And so initially he starts with working with Hiram Maxim um, in the early days. And, and when Maxim starts working in different parts of the world, he goes to England and, and actually helps Maxim develop the, his power systems in England. And he returns with understanding that he felt racism at times worse than he did in the United States. But he comes back to the United States and then he's kind of out of the center of the inventive world. And as a marginalized person of color, he ends up working with every, I would say second, third, fourth, fifth tier, hustler, entrepreneur, innovator, anyone who's trying to make their way in this kind of electric incandescent power world. And so a series of years, he works with all those people. So he knows everyone. And what's most interesting about it is that when the, the Edison companies make their way to the patent office, um, Latimer joins their small but burgeoning legal team, you know, a handful of people. And I argue that part of the reason you need Latimer to join their small and burgeoning legal team is that um, in several of the cases, Latimer is brought in to defend the Edison patents and to say, no, I know that guy. I met him three years ago when he was doing this thing. So he is kind of their legal attack dog, shooting down everyone, um, everyone's opportunity to challenge the Edison patents. So what I find more interesting about Latimer is this level of knowledge he was able to acquire by being a, a marginalized individual allowed him to have a set of knowledges that were deeply powerful and sustaining and maintaining arguably some of the most important patents of the, the 19th century. So I think part of what's interesting about African-Americans invention and innovation is to try to understand them in their different spaces, places, and contexts. Yeah, and, and could you just speak a little bit more about how, I, I, that's a really fascinating story with, with Latimer, and I, I actually have your book on order because I, I was reading the back. So I read the Wikipedia page for Latimer specifically. I was like, I got to know more about this guy. It's so fascinating, the legal infrastructure kind of argument you put there that he's an essential part because of his marginalized position. He has access to this really unique knowledge. But could you speak just a little bit more to tack back to what you were originally saying about kind of how narratives of progress and African-American populations and inventors interacted with that? Yeah, I think it's, these narratives of progress have been really tremendously complicated, right? Historically and contemporarily. Uh, so I think black inventors and the, the use of say black inventors list during Black History Month are, are really powerful and potent. Uh, and back to that kind of narratives of progress. So people like Du Bois deployed black inventors to make the argument that, yes, if invention is this God-given talent and ability, we can completely debunk and destabilize this perception of black inferiority if we can show that African-American people can invent in the same 
frequency, rhythm, and context of, of white inventors. So they were deployed very, very actively and just saying, look at this. Uh, similarly, in the 1960s, early 70s, um, during the civil rights movement, black inventors were deployed similarly, but in, uh, in equally powerful ways. Instead of debunking this perception of black inferiority, black inventors were deployed as exemplars of what, of the, of what the potential of blackness or, or potential of what African-American people can be. So it was the idea that these are individuals that you should look up to and aspire to be. So they became role models in a sense of, let's look back into our past and see people who, particularly black people, who were able to challenge the system, overcome, and survive. So it's troubling though, because um, when we think about African-American inventors, oftentimes the narration is that they're all race champions. They invented for one sole purpose to uplift and support the race. But uh, many of them were doing it for a lot of similar reasons that white inventors, any inventor was trying to earn a patent is to make money, uh, to put them in position to develop financial security for their family and others. So I think we, we can't totally get it twisted in the sense that black inventors are being used and deployed by other intellectuals, other people for other per terms and means. But oftentimes the black inventors were, I wouldn't say they're any less heroic there we want them to be, but oftentimes we um, use them to be more heroic than they, they were trying to be at the time. Yeah, and that's such an interesting kind of, you know, it, I can think of all the examples I have in my head, particularly of like in World War II propaganda, the uh, growing kind of isolation of certain, I, I've read a history of, of certain African-American cultural activities being uh, actually retooled for the wartime economy and being propagandized as good and it being held up as somehow now black people have a value they didn't have previously. And that's such an interesting, particularly in the context of that entrepreneurial, uh, mid-industrial kind of capitalism you describe, the, the way that these actors were playing in that space. And so, you know, this is clearly a really complicated history, and there's a lot going on here. I mean, you're drawing it from various movements in time and in the American civil rights kind of bigger picture. And... I'm just curious to what concepts do you use or, or ideas to wrap this all together into like a cohesive narrative? And, and what are your kind of findings from wrapping together, particularly in your book on black inventors, uh, these three different characters together of Latimer and the other inventors? No, I think when we think about these kind of larger historical concepts and ideas, um, you know, uh, I, I know I, I think about this as an oldie but a goodie, but I'm, I'm kind of incessantly drawn to Langdon Winner's work um, about artifacts and politics. Uh, and I still think that's, in thinking about the context of race, I think it's like a central piece of writing and work that really deeply makes us think about the ways in which artifacts, politics, and identity are deployed in a host of kind of racial and cultural regimes. I mean, I think it's really um, kind of seminal to the way I think about these questions about race. And it's really asking the questions about, you know, how do technologies get placed 
in very different cultural environments and are used for specific means and goals and agendas outside of the context of, of their originally intended work. And I think this is the part where I'm fascinated with when you think about African-Americans and patents from the late 19th century, um, clearly patents that expired, you know, a long time ago, people don't think about them, but the idea that you can use a name, a patent number, and a, a name of, a, of this patent to stand in for black power, um, destabilizing racial presumptions, and making arguments about black innovation, entrepreneurial spirit, and transforming our society and culture. That's a really powerful thing that those simple patents are doing and can be deployed to do in the last, um, in the recent past. So I think I'm intrigued about the ways in which, I mean, the more recently the work I'm, I'm doing right now is the ways in which like race is inscribed or thought to be inscribed in certain objects and how that, um, influences the ways we, we think about the world. And I think that's why I began with that, the Grandmaster Flash concept. Is that, right, he helps design this new mixer that is embedded with his perception of what black cultural sound should be. And using this mixer to materialize that and able to produce the sonic experiences that he wants to support and champion. So I think those are some of the, I guess, those ideas that are really shaping how the way I think about the world. Yeah, and I, I knowing Langdon, that's that's he'd be very happy to hear that, given that his uh, his article has that example about the bridges in New York. Much. And, uh, yeah, we can have a long conversation about the bridges, right? Because you know that um, that has caused Langdon. I don't even know how, I don't even know where to go with that. I mean, it's, some people have, have argued with him about that. You know, recently there've been some other things that people have been gone out there and actually measure the bridges and they're like, actually Langdon was right. Uh, so, so, uh, but I mean, I think uh, as I've written about that, that case, I mean, the, the point is, is that, you know, there's certain kind of racialized affordances that dictate how black people are allowed to move um, and choose bridges, choose public housing, choose um, restricted covenants, choose all kinds of different things. I mean, so the idea that there, that racism is built into a material artifacts of our world, our perceptions about race are built into the infrastructure of our world is, is right on point. And just to quickly, because we're, we're on the kind of topic of built infrastructure and the overpasses, it just has me thinking, in your historical work about black inventors and their inventions, did you see a pattern of, of certain areas of technology being um, more okay or not okay for them to develop in? Because I'm, I'm kind of interested how the kind of idea space, if you will, afforded certain black inventors certain inventions. And I'm thinking of the narrative that, you know, black people in this country are associated with urban spaces, built urban spaces. And I'm wondering, that was a big change. And previous to that, they were associated with rural spaces. So was there a change in kind of invention and in the inventions they made because of that change? Well, um, the work I've done a little bit about, and I think Lisa Cook's work speaks to this more, more directly than mine, is that I think the scape and scope of African-American inventors is kind of closely reflects the, the scape and scope of non-white, non-black inventors, meaning that uh, 
what's relevant and close to experience, close to their lives and connected to the way they want to move forward. Uh, there are things that are being patented in that regard. So yes, there's a whole kind of scope of inventions, um, I would say in the context of say, hair care products. So there are, there's a host of it, black inventors and patenting objects, devices, chemicals that deal with black hair. And right, that's very close and near to their, to their experiences. So I think that's, that, that's a, a one set of examples where uh, race is connected directly. Uh, there's something else I was gonna say, now, now I forgot. And the question was, you're asking specifically about? Uh, just, the, just the relationship between kind of the black experience and the inventions, uh, and if there was a change over time. And I cited that kind of, that change from obviously the rural uh, world of slavery, of agrarian slavery, of chattel slavery, to the, uh, you know, the shift to the great migration. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if that changed how black inventions kind of happened and, and what they produced. Yeah, so I guess the one, the one thing I was going to say is that um, I think Lisa Cook's work points this out very poignantly that the prolific moment of African-American invention in the 20th century to this current day. And for me, I think one of the pieces that's really important is like proximity and friendships. So Henry Baker, who I mentioned before, the black patent examiner. Henry Baker was a member of some of the elitist and wealthiest black associations, clubs, and organizations in Washington, D.C. And there was a strong uptick in the patents from people that belonged to his organization. Uh, and, you know, I've searched for years trying to find bits and pieces of correspondence between Henry Baker and other folks who lived in his social circles in their patenting. Uh, and I haven't found anything because I assume in many ways, these were not written down conversations, but my argument and my, my uh, assumption is that Henry Baker was a key piece, a player in providing really useful advice and saying, hey, you've got this idea. This is how you navigate the patent office. Uh, and I think that's how often many of those processes works. I mean, I think this is why early on, before you have the kind of infrastructure of patent attorneys, you have these patent solicitors who would massage the system. And so there's no better person to help you navigate the U.S. Patent Office than have a black patent examiner who is on your side. So I think oftentimes, like many business endeavors, who you know matters often more than what you know. Fascinating, fascinating. And you know, just because we're on the subject, I to take an intersectional view, how does class mix with this? You mentioned that that Henry Baker, for example, was part of these elite societies in in black society in America at the time. How is there kind of a class element that that most inventors of that period or that hot period that you're discussing now, 20th century to present? You know, is there a change in class or or is class kind of an irrelevant item? Is the category of blackness really overriding? Well, I mean, if we're talking about an intersectional perspective, right, it's it's definitely, my perspective, definitely driven by class, mm. right? Louis Latimer, um, when speaking with his granddaughter who you know, passed away a handful of years ago, was saying, well, yeah, he, he moved flushing. She remembers playing tennis on their tennis court um, in the backyard. And, and so just this kind of upper class experience. Uh, and 
uh, even in the context of gender, right? Um, if you look at the number of patents, particularly by black people, um, women are very, very down on numbers. And we can get into the whole kind of large scale perception about women in technology, women in invention, women in innovation. Uh, but I would argue that early 20th century, you know, black communities were just as gender phobic um, as any other community. So, you know, Henry Baker wasn't talking to the innovative women in his communities. He was talking to innovative men. Uh, so I think the problems around gender transcend, I would say, the, the race differences and, and ethnic barriers. And, but I do think class is part of it, right? So to get to the patent office, you needed resources. I mean, you still need resources. And uh, if you have a good idea, um, you need some protection. I think this is why I think, from my perspective, Henry Baker is a key player in the, the narrative and the story, because uh, one of the inventors I wrote about Granville Woods, um, his whole, the reason why I learned so much about Granville Woods is because of patent interference cases. Pretty much for 10 to 15 years, he was involved in this protracted extended legal battle with a guy named James Zerby, who was a patent solicitor who tried to steal his ideas. And if you don't have that infrastructural legal financial support, it's easy for someone, particularly for people of color, to, to have their ideas taken to someone gets in the patent office really quickly. Uh, so, yeah, I think class, status, wealth, and particularly having someone who was connected to the patent office was, and probably still is a very useful tool to managing the future. Yeah, wow, that's a, absolutely fascinating. I mean, of course, class plays in it, but. I think we have a, a particular idea here in America where we, we look backwards with race and we kind of only see race and we don't also think about how the other complexities in are both the meta community of America and these local communities, like the difference between poor and rich white and poor and rich black. So that's really fascinating. And, and just to kind of close out this really fascinating discussion and, and thank you so much for just kind of taking my, my field questions that have developed as I've been talking with you. I think it's really clear, if we consider what you've talked about, that, that you're discussing black technologists and these processes and patterns and history in a more accurate manner. But I think it, you've also brought this element that's a little more bringing to light how influential the dynamics of race uh, and as we were just discussing class and gender were to these these technological inventions. And I think that there's probably some lessons today. Usually in the shot camp, we're in the there's lessons for today or there's things to learn from history uh, kind of mindset. And so foremost for me is this deconstruction of inventors, uh, inventors and invention, this idea that they do it themselves, that they are isolated and taken out. There's an individual behind every society there. You know, I, I kind of say to my students and they're like, what is a Mobius strip? But I say, you know, it, it's a Mobius strip of agency and structure. You can't really tear them apart. And I think that's really useful for dissecting what these people did. But I'm wondering, particularly in 2020, what your reflections are on this, this career of work you've put together and 
you know, stands out in your book from 2005, a long time ago, Black Adventures in the Age of Segregation. So I, if I could just get your, your last thoughts on, thoughts and reflections on, on what we do with this knowledge, what the lessons are, and how we should consider these histories when we consider, you know, Black people in marginalized communities today. I think the thing that's my, I would say most important to pull away from, take away from the, the work that I've been doing is to really understand that, well, a couple things, right? There's a difference between the patenting or patentee and an inventor innovation. Uh, I think we're all innovation, innovative. And, uh, Right. I always make the example of when I'm teaching class, I always use it like a pencil and say, right, pencil has kind of this dominant ex expression of how it's being used, like writing. But of course, you can use to scratch your ear. People have been murdered with pencils. It can do all kinds of things, right? It's this massive amount of interpretive flexibility of this, of this device that allows you to do all kinds of things. Uh, and I think that's really the part that's really amazing about technology. But I think race in this current moment is revealing itself to have not disappeared. Uh, our tensions around difference in all kinds of forms are still alive and well. And I think it's still important to think about uh, how can we as a society be technologically innovative to help change the world of figuring out a way to monetize and commercialize every aspect of the things we produce. And I think this is where I feel like I'm most saddened by this moment, like realizing the goal is instead at times to make money or to make the world a better place. And I think for people like me who study innovation, invention, uh, I'm drawn to some of those old school inventors to, yeah, they were, part of it was about to make some money, but part of it was like, I've got this really great idea that I believe will make the world a better place. And uh, I think the pieces we should draw from like these historical stories is that, yeah, what happened to the idea that I'm going to invent something that will yeah, financially impact me in a positive way, but also make the world better for all of us collectively. So I think those are my last little bits about it and 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 i i i agree entirely i think that's there is something kind of you know maybe it's the antiquarian in, a, in both of us as, as history people but there is something engaging about those stories and the and the passion and fervor uh i don't know i i always use this joke phrase that i'm like nostalgic for an earlier more honest phase of capitalism but you know i'll actually lie and i'll ask you another question just because we're here and, and that question is, is there a way to open up what innovation and invention are so that we can kind of understand more, uh, more of the contributions of marginalized people? For example, you bringing up the example earlier of, of hair products. I don't think anybody who is like an engineer, a white engineer at RPI, for example, thinks like, oh, hair products is innovation, but it's completely indefensible to say that's not innovation. Is there also a way we can open up like social innovation? Uh, because I've been reading a lot re recently about the impact that like marginalized and, and black communities in America have had on civil rights for other people. And there seems to be a degree of social innovation there pushing what is accepted and limited. So, you know, what are your thoughts about that? 
and actually yeah. we'll, we'll close ourselves off after this. Sorry. Yeah. No, but I think the thing is, uh, right, this is the kind of the, the argument for diversity. And this is the push for all kinds of diverse communities. And oftentimes it's very clear to anyone doing research on kind of innovations, whether social, cultural, technological, that diverse communities of people with different ideas create better, more interesting, more thoughtful projects and devices and, and, and pieces of our world. So I think it's a more a, a question of like, so how do we get marginalized voices into the broader conversation of innovation? Uh, what does it mean to think about um, technology in different spaces, right? And so one of the things, uh, this doesn't necessarily do with race, but I'm thinking about the context of like rural Wi-Fi. Um, right now, I'm in a rural part of Michigan, and um, I'm, I'm hanging on by a, a thread to get connectivity. And there's no interest or desire to bring any kind of connectivity out here. And actually, there's um, actual a desire to limit that possibility of those futures. So, but I think part of what I'm kind of rambling around about is saying that, you know, there's something energy and excitement that marginalized communities can bring to the kind of inventive innovation and social cultural space. And part of that is just bring in conversations, ideas, concepts, sentiments and feelings that have not been there for, before and use that as an expiring and innovative and creative note to change the texture and the contours of our social and cultural and innovative conversations. Yeah, I mean, innovation is a human and it's a social process. Invention is, you know, it's frequently isolated as this like, you know, gears and bolts thing, but it's emotional. It's embodied. It's a negotiation. And I think I agree wholeheartedly in the call for, for more of these conversations, negotiations. I guess the tricky part is to get past uh, platitudes and to get into actually bringing these people materially into the communities that, that would benefit from them. Thank you so much, Rayvon, for your time today. And just thank you for really <clears throat> engaging with some, you know, your, your career of work and talking about all these different kind of processes going on throughout American history and how they're really interacting with our ideas and our material bases of technology. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.